right, good morning, River City Church. Hope you are all doing good today. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Chris. Uh, last time I spoke, like two months ago, I think, one or two months ago, that's pretty exciting. Four months ago? All right, never mind. It was October. Oh, wow, all right. So anyways, yeah, last time I spoke, I think I was the pastoral intern, so that was pretty cool. And now this time I'm speaking, and I am the connections pastor. So I got a promotion since last time I spoke, so that's pretty cool. Yeah, awesome, exciting, yeah. So I'm excited. Next time I speak, I can't wait to see what role I am at, see what my next promotion should be fun. Um, <clears throat> but anyway, so I'm glad that all of you uh, came out to join us for worship this morning. Hopefully you enjoyed the excellent job that Becky and Pastor Jared and the rest of the crew did. It's always, always really good to hear that. Um, but anyways... So uh, for those of you who have a Bible with you, if you, or you have a Bible app, we're going to end up in John chapter 15. So you can turn there if you want. We'll get to that in a couple of hours. Um, but first, <laughs> um, but first, uh, before the service, my fiance, she's sitting back there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> thanks. Yeah, my fiance, she was uh, complaining because I'm wearing my jacket. So she insisted that it's not appropriate for me to wear my jacket up here. So... There is a good reason for it, I promise. It's not a fashion statement. Um, some of you saw on Facebook, I went to a bike park last Sunday. It's pretty fun. And uh, so it was indoors. It wasn't outdoors in the freezing cold. And so there was a lot of ramps and jumps, and there was a foam pit. What was that? I just saw that on Facebook. Yeah, that's me. I'm that guy. And so, <laughs> um, but anyways, so... That's all right. That's all right. So, you know, we there's a lot of jumps and there's a foam pit and kids doing crazy stuff there. And, uh, and anyway, so as I'm going around, I was terrified. This is my first time at a bike park. I'm not used to doing BMX stuff or anything like that. I'm usually pretty conservative. I like to sit at home and watch Netflix. That's my, you know, being adventurous is watching a new movie. And so this was a big step. So anyways, as I'm sitting there, I'm watching these little kids. They're like six years old. So I, I don't know if there was six-year-old kids in here or not thought they were. They're downstairs. Oh, okay. So anyways, I saw these little six-year-old kids like this tall. I kid you not, like this tall. And they're going off these huge jumps and they're just fearless. It's amazing how fearless these little kids are as they're just flying through these tracks. And, and I'm sitting there and I'm struggling with the little ones. You know, I'm a 25-year-old grown man and I can't get over the little, one, the little jumps. And every time the bike's, you know, wiggling under me. So I'm getting really nervous with each jump. And I wiped out a couple of times. Not only were these, these little kids just flying by me, but there's also a guy on a unicycle going around. He's going off of these jumps. So I got this guy on one wheel going off these jumps, and he's smiling at everyone because everyone's got their phones out taking pictures of this guy because, you know, he's going on this BMX track on one wheel, which is pretty cool. But anyways, so we decided to take this track around the outside of the, uh, the bike park here, the, around... And there was a lot of inclines, and there's a lot of slopes going down, slopes going up, things to jump over, and it was pretty intense. And there was this part where you had to take a turn, and then there was a downward ramp. So, and then at the bottom of that ramp, there was, on the right-hand side, another little ramp, and on the left-hand side, some logs to jump over. Some of you probably have no idea what I'm talking about anymore. That's okay. <laughs> but um, I was told, you want to stick to the right, because you want to take that ramp instead. So I said, okay, great. So I go to the right, and I turned a little too wide, and I was riding. I didn't bounce off the wall. I rode with the wall down this slope. And, then, um, and so then I go off the ramp, and I'm still in the wall. And then finally, I pull myself off. And a couple minutes later, I realize there's a huge gash on my arm here. So I've got a couple of stitches. It looks pretty bad. So that's why I'm wearing a jacket. 
And because I didn't want everyone to get grossed out and have to leave. But anyways, so that night I went and I had to get stitches, of course. And uh, the first person who was going to stitch me up looked at it, got a little nervous and left. So then the next person came in and they stitched it up. And, and of course, as they're stitching me up, I, I couldn't help but laugh to myself. You know, the one time I try to be adventurous and try to live on the edge a little bit, I get a huge gash in my arm and eight stitches. So I learned my lesson. I learned that I'm not very good at BMX. I'm not very good at bike riding in general, apparently. And uh, it was just a, it was a good reminder for me that I'm not the best at everything. And uh, I think a lot of us, at some point in time, we hit that moment when we realize, I'm not the best at this. You know, whether we try to bake something and it just completely burns the, the stove up, or you know, whether it's a, so we're trying to do something and we just kind of embarrass ourselves a little bit. I think we've all hit a point in our lives when we realized we weren't the best at something. And I think if some of us remember way back in the day of the old days of American Idol. And does anybody remember that show? The good days of it. I think it's still on. 15 seasons, for those of you that want to feel old. 15 seasons of American Idol. But anyways, the, uh, the olden days, I used to watch that every night. Every night that it was on. I was super excited. I, was, I didn't care about the talented people, though. I don't think anybody did. We all watched it for the people that were terrible. You know, the people that would go on the show and they say, oh, I'm great, my mom says I'm the best singer that there is, and all my friends, they love it when I sing, and then they get up there and they sing for the judges and they sound terrible. And we all would watch it and we'd laugh at them because they sound terrible, and, and, uh, and so then the judges, thankfully there was that one guy, Simon, he, had the, he only wore white t-shirts, I think that's all he owned, black, black and white, black and white t-shirts, and so... He would just sit there and he would set them straight, tell them, hey, you're terrible, you should just go home, or, you know, say probably different, find different ways of saying that, pretty creative guy. But um, <laughs> anyways, so, so, yeah, so anyway, so he would sit there and he would tell them that they weren't very good, and sometimes they would get mad and they would argue and insist that they were good, sometimes they would keep singing, because maybe that'll change his mind, and you get all this stuff going on, and so finally they would, they'd get sent home, because they weren't quite good enough to make the next cut. So that's something that isn't new, actually. This is something that society always has a way of letting us know, hey, you're not really the best at this. You're not quite good enough to get to that next level. And today, we're going to take a look at uh, first century Hebrew school. Pretty exciting. And the, the schooling that you had to go through to become a rabbi. For those of you who don't know what a rabbi is, it was the Jewish teachers or the Hebrew teachers back in the Bible days. They were the religious leaders that taught people about different scriptures, interpretations. They handled a lot of things. Now, in the community, your rabbi was the most influential person. This was the person that was well-respected, well-loved, and everybody endeared this person. This was the best person that you could be in your community. So kind of like being the pastor of River City Church. Pretty big deal. Yeah. <laughs> It's okay, they're laughing, you can laugh. So, anyways, but the schooling for this was pretty intense, it was pretty rigorous. So, these, bo- these Hebrew boys, they would start school at like six years old, and all they would do is just memorize the Old Testament, that's all they did. So they just memorized the Hebrew text, which at this point was the Old Testament. So for some of us, we think, that's great, I would love that. Sounds better than trigonometry and physics and, you know, a thousand elements on the periodic table. I just love to learn the Bible. That'd be great. Well, to put it in perspective for you, not as easy as we think. By the time that these Hebrew boys were 10 years old of just memorizing scripture, they had the entire Pentateuch memorized. So that would be Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy 
all memorized by the time they were 10 years old. So I think some of us know 10-year-olds, and we think, uh, yeah, probably not today. But <laughs> I think that if we think about it, you know, 10-year-olds, they have all sorts of things memorized. They're learning addition. They're learning subtraction. They memorize all these songs they hear on the radio, and they have all sorts of memorization. So it's possible. But So they were literally just focusing on the Bible, so that's all they were memorizing. So by the time they were 10, they had the first five books of the Bible memorized. And so you keep going. So those who were the best of the best were allowed to continue in their schooling. The ones that weren't quite getting it, the ones that weren't quite good enough, they were sent home to learn the family trade. So by the time you were 13 or 14 years old, you had the entire Old Testament memorized by the time you were 14. And so that, to put that in perspective, let's see if I can do this appropriately here. If you have... Here we go. So here's your entire Bible here, right? So this whole section here, the first like two-thirds of your Bible, you can see that. They had that memorized by the time they were 14. So that is a lot of memorization. That is intense when you think about it, that you know that much, and you just have it in for memory. So they finish. And of course, not everybody was quite good enough to get to that level. Not everybody had that. So the ones that weren't the best of the best, of course, were sent home. So by the time you finished your schooling, it was determined. You are one of the best of the best that we have in our community. It, you, you have what it takes, as far as we're concerned, to become a rabbi. So now you decide that you're going to go find a rabbi that you can shadow for a while. So what these Hebrew boys would do is after school, after they finished with their schooling, they would go and find a rabbi that they can follow and that they can learn from. And um, it was kind of like an internship in a, in a way. And so just, just to kind of help with that, it was important to who you chose as your rabbi because just about every rabbi was different. They had different interpretations of verses. They handled different verses differently. And so for, for, it was important for you to choose because you wanted to choose a rabbi that you lined up with as far as teaching goes. And so not only would you follow the teaching of your rabbi, but you would also try to mimic the mannerisms of your rabbi. Because you didn't only want to teach like your rabbi, you wanted to be your rabbi. It was a very, very crucial thing. So you watched how he ate, you watched how he slept, you watched how this rabbi shook hands. You know, did he do the firm grip? Did he do the 10-step handshake that you lose track after step six and make it up the rest of the way? Some of you do that, I'm sure. But it was important to mimic every single thing that your rabbi did because you wanted to be just like your rabbi. So this Hebrew boy just finishes school and he finds a rabbi that he likes. He says, you know what, I like the teachings of this rabbi. I want to study after him. So he goes up to this rabbi and he says, Rabbi, I want to be your Talmud. So let's hear you say Talmud. Good. Some of you are, you're all still awake. Excellent. So the, for those of you who don't know, Talmud means student. So he essentially is going up to this rabbi and he says, I want to be your Talmud. I want to be your student. So the rabbi, he of course, he has a questionnaire he has to fill out. So he starts interviewing him, asking him questions. Well, what do you think of this verse? What do you think of this interpretation of scripture? What do you think the writer's trying to say in these verses? And so then this, this little Hebrew boy, about 14 years old, would have to answer all these questions on the spot. And they would have this conversation about the Bible, about theology, about different aspects of scripture, and about God. And, and at, the end of this, at the end of all of this, the rabbi would look at this, this 14-year-old boy and say, you have what it takes to be my disciple, come and follow me. Or he would say, you do not have what it takes to be my disciple, go home and pick up the family trade. 
So at this point, if you haven't noticed, if you go home and pick up the family trade, that is essentially a, you're not really good at this, so that's probably the best you can do. But anyways, so let's think about that for a second. Hebrew boy goes through school from 6 to 14, memorizing nothing but the Old Testament. He's watching all of his friends get sent home because they aren't quite good enough. And school tells him, you know what, you're got, you've got this. You're pretty good at this. And then he finishes his schooling feeling confident, and then he goes to a rabbi, and he says, I want to study under you. And the rabbi, after a couple of questions, tells him, you don't have what it takes. Go home and learn your family trade. That has to be frustrating, disappointing, humiliating, to go through all of that, spending your entire childhood after one thing, just to be told that you weren't good enough for it. And I think that's something that society still does today sometimes for some of us. We get this feeling that we aren't quite good enough. We can't do those things that we dreamed of doing when we were in high school. So I think some people dreamed of being baseball players, catching a touchdown in the Super Bowl, you know, or something simpler than that. And sometimes society tells us that we aren't good enough to do that. So in walks Jesus. So when Jesus is walking around the Sea of Galilee, and he sees Peter, and he sees James, and he sees John, and he sees Andrew, and they're all mending their father's nets, we immediately know one thing about these disciples, that they're in the family business. They're working the family trade. So that tells us, after all that background that we just went through, we can see that at some point, these guys were told, you aren't good enough. You don't have what it takes to be a spiritual leader. You don't have what it takes to make a difference, to change the world. And so they were sent home. That's something that we know right away on our disciples based on the fact that they're working for their dad. So when Jesus comes up to them and he tells them, drop your nets, come and follow me, we now understand why the disciples were so quick to drop their nets and leave. They weren't, <laughs> right? So, yeah, so, yeah, so. But anyway, so we see why, though. It makes a little bit more sense because before, they, they lived their entire adulthood life, however old they were, being told that they didn't have what it takes to make a difference, that there's no way that they could possibly be a spiritual leader. And in walks a rabbi, and he tells them, drop your nets, come and follow me. This is something that every Hebrew boy dreamed of, I think. I don't know, I wasn't there. I just, I'm guessing that every Hebrew boy wanted to be a rabbi because that was the most esteemed position. That was the most respected position. That was a sign that you were the best of the best in your community. And so for a rabbi to go up to them and say, come on, follow me, let's go change the world, that's a big deal. So, because, like I said before, usually you approached the rabbi and asked to join. Instead, Jesus came up to them and said, come and follow me. And so we see here Jesus changing the script, changing the way tradition, and changing the way that they did things. Jesus has a knack for doing that in the Gospels. Now, for those of you who have been patiently waiting at John chapter 16, or 15, sorry, we're going to get there in just a second. But um, it's important because we now see, you know, as Jesus is and, and his disciples and their relationship, their interactions, and we see how different things interact, we now see just how important and uh, Jesus is to his disciples because, like I said, you weren't just trying to learn the teachings of your rabbi. You were trying to study the mannerisms. You wanted to be just like your rabbi. So for these disciples, they wanted to literally be just like Jesus, not because he's Jesus God, but because he was their rabbi. So it kind of gives a little bit of a backdrop there to the disciples and their relationship with Jesus. And it all kind of comes together, all that stuff where Jesus tells them, come on and follow me. And Jesus says, you know, 
drop your nets. And so they drop their nets and they go. It all kind of comes to, he kind of makes it a little bit more clear here in John chapter 15 and verse 16. I'll read it here. He says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. And in this, we see Jesus kind of telling them exactly where he was at. He says, You did not choose me, I chose you. And when society told them that they weren't quite good enough, and when society said that they couldn't possibly be a leader, and when society told them to just go home, learn a family trade, and maybe you'll live a good, happy life, Jesus came along and he said, I chose you. I wanted you to be a leader. I wanted you so that way you can make a difference, so that way you can help change the world. And that gives so much more power to what Jesus is saying when we realize He chose the team of people that weren't quite good enough. This is the B team. This is the team that society looked at and said, they're okay. You know, they're not the best, though. And Jesus took them, and he changed the world with these people. And that's a message that's still ringing true today. Jesus is still reaching out. He's still choosing people to make a difference. He's still choosing people to lead. He's still choosing people to change their community. And we look at that and we think, well, that's great. You know, God's chosen me. Even when society tells me that I'm not quite good enough, even when society says that I don't have what it takes, that maybe I should look at doing something else with my life, that we can look at, we can look at our lives and we can look at the future confident, confidently and say, God has chosen me to do something great. God has chosen me to make a difference. And we aren't going to worry about what society tries to tell us because we serve a God that's much greater than what society ever could be. So we look at that and we think, well, what, that's great, but what have I been chosen to do? I have no idea. That's great. Well, with the rest of it, he does talk about you know, bearing fruit and you know, bearing fruit that bears fruit. So he talks about discipleship with the disciples, of course. But at the end of the Gospels, we kinda get a, he, he kind of gives a bigger declaration, I guess, to all of his followers. He tells them, go and teach. In another Gospel, he says, go and preach. He tells them to go and baptize. So essentially what Jesus is telling all of his followers is go and be the church. And so in Acts, the next book after the Gospels, we see his followers going and being the church. What does that mean? What does that look like? And so for us today, we have been, <clears throat> we have been chosen to be the church. You are the church. There was a slide for it. There it is. Yeah, there it is. All right. You <laughs> You are the church, all right? And that is so important. That is so crucial because we have been chosen to do something great. We have been chosen to do something that Jesus himself started. He started this thing, and he's chosen us to continue this 2,000 years later. So what does that mean for us, though? Well, that brings up all sorts of important questions. What's the church? What does that mean? What are we supposed to do at the church? Where is the church? Who is the church? Instead, we're just going to focus on two questions. First of all, what are you doing in the church, inside the walls? Okay, I mean, a couple of, a while ago, I went to this church, and I wasn't feeling like, I didn't feel like I was fitting in. I didn't feel like I had a place in the church. And so I sat down with the pastor, and I said, you know, pastor, I'm not really sure what I'm supposed to do here. I've been coming for a while, and I just don't feel like there's a place for me to serve. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. So he hands me a book, uh, like, like 20 pages that he printed off of a computer. And he says, we have 375 jobs. Here they are. And kind of looked at it, and I thought, well, all right, this is intimidating. 
So, I, you know, so you go through the 375 jobs, and you know, of course, half of them were stand here. And, you know, another 20 were like stand over there. The other half were like sit here. You know, smile at the people from this spot. And I thought, well, you know, that's exciting. You know, and um, and then of course there was like an application process you had to go through for it. You had to interview just to sit in one spot. You know, that kind of a thing. It's like this is really in depth. Oh my goodness, I don't know if I'm able to do this. I don't know if Jesus is qualified to serve at this church. And so, and so anyways, so, you know, so unfortunately sometimes we walk into a church and we think, wow, this is, this is intimidating. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Well, we can tell you that here at River City Church, there's a place for you. We may not have 375 jobs, but we do have a place for you. And we can find a place to plug you in. We can find a way that you can make a difference here at River City Church. And we can find a place where you can come in and feel like you have a purpose and know that you have a purpose. Okay? Because that's what we're about. We're about creating a community. We're about serving our community. And this is a great place to plug in and find a way to, to make a difference. Because at the end of the day, I feel like that's something that we all want. We want to feel like we have a purpose. We want to feel like our lives counted for something. And here, that can happen. But that's not the only question. The other question that comes with this, with being the church, is what are you doing outside the walls? We often get this idea that when I leave church, church is done. I can just kind of go back to being the normal Chris. And so we just kind of go and we do our own thing and we go to work and we hang out with our coworkers and we go with our, our block party. My neighborhood, we, had, we lived on a cul-de-sac and so like every like two months we would just have this party and I, I don't know what we did. I, I never went, but apparently there was this huge thing. So, you know, you go, to these, you go to these parties and you go and hang out with friends and family and, and that's it. And there's no, there's no church about you. You're not the church anymore in your mind. I mean, one of the toughest things for me ever was I was working with this guy. His name was Garrett. And we worked together for a little over a year. So we hung out all the time because our shifts always were together. So we worked a lot. And, and after about a year of working with this guy, something came up. And he said, and he stopped me and said, wait a second. You're a Christian? I had no idea. And I thought, oh, oops, you know. Um, <laughs> I've been working with this guy for a year, and he had no idea that I was a Christian. At some point, I dropped the ball. Actually, for a year, I dropped the ball. <laughs> and, and so, I mean, for me, that's just, that, was so, that was so convicting. I felt the Holy Spirit convict me for that, saying, why, why aren't you living a life that reflects me better? Why do people have to find out through a subtle comment a year later that you're a Christian? You know, you're not just a Christian when you're, at church, when you're at River City Church. You're a Christian every day, every moment. And you're a representative of me every moment. No matter where you're at, no matter who you're with, okay, you are River City Church. And it is your job to go out and to share your faith with other people and to go out and to be a good influence. And when other people are doing things that you probably shouldn't be doing, you probably shouldn't be doing it with them. And so, for me, it was a really convicting moment because I realized that I wasn't doing a good job of sharing my faith. I wasn't really doing a good job of being a Christian outside of the church. And so, my challenge for you this morning is, first, is twofold. First of all, find a way to plug in here at River City Church. Like I said, it's not a scary church. It's not intimidating. Don't let Pastor Jared scare you. He's all right. And... Uh, but there is a place for you here. We can find a way to plug you in, and you can make a difference. You can serve here at River City Church. And you know, we've got plenty of opportunity. Not 375, but pretty close. Maybe 374. 
So, yeah. Because, yeah, so we'll see. But anyways, but not only that, but the other challenge is when you leave here today and when you leave church next Sunday and the Sunday after that, to, really, to remember that you're still a Christian. You still are the church even when you leave here. And so when you're with your community, when you're with your friends and family and coworkers or whoever else, to realize that you are the church to that person. So it is your job. You are representative of Christ. So make sure that you share your faith. Don't be afraid to, you know, to talk about Christ. And don't be afraid to invite them to church and bring them here. Maybe you don't want to talk about it because you're a little nervous. Bring them here and we'll gladly talk about, about God to them. That's not a problem. So the important thing in all of this, though, is to remember that God has chosen us to do something amazing. And whether we're doing stuff amazing in the, wall, in the walls of River City Church here or outside the walls, we have been chosen to do something great, to do something marvelous. Dear Lord, thank you so much for this opportunity to speak. Um, thank you for uh, listening and the uh, open hearts and open ears. I pray that you would just uh, bless us as we go out from here, that we would uh, just remember that we are the church. And whether we're here on Sunday morning or whether at work on Monday morning, that we are still a Christian, that we are still followers of you, and that we are still River City Church. And I pray that we would take that with us and that together we could change Watertown, that together we could change our community, and that we can watch you work in amazing ways, far greater than ways that we ever would have imagined. And I pray that you would just help us, uh, be with those that aren't here, with whatever it is that they have going on, that you would help them with that. And I pray this all in your name. Amen.